chapter 10. Verse 17, Mark 10, 17, and following, we'll read this together. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, 2015, there was a, a Rolling Stone article uh, about this guy named Ben Schlappig, and um, this is 25-year-old at the time, and uh, he was uh, a master at what's come to be called as travel hacking. Um, so what he did, what his mission was, was to fly on airplanes for free as much as possible without the airlines catching on to his game. And so um, he amassed millions of frequent flyer uh, miles. So he did a few things to hack the system in order to get uh, these, these miles. So he would apply for credit cards. Some of you know if you apply for credit cards, you can get miles, but you've got to spend a certain amount of money. And so he would spend $3,000, uh, but he would spend it on dollar coins that he would have shipped to himself, and then it would immediately pay off uh, the debt that he had created. And so virtually he didn't spend any money, and he got all the frequent flyer miles. Um, Then he would do things like this. He would find the cheapest flights possible, $40 flights, $50 flights, just so he could get the mileage. And so he would fly to the most random places in Hong Kong, all over the place, just to get um, these miles. And he would would do the math and figure out, well, this is kind of an investment here. I'll spend $40 here, but I'll get 2,000 miles. And so he did all of this hacking the system. And at times, airlines would be on to him, and they would cancel his frequent flyers, and he would figure out ways to to 
find another airline or to do it again in some other kind of way. But to succeed, he had to keep flying and keep flying. And in uh, this article in Rolling Stone, it said in 2014, he took off, he, he left into the air and he hasn't landed since. So for years, he has not stayed in his own home. He has flown all the way around the world and stayed in hotel after hotel and lives this life, blogs about it, of course, because you have to blog about it, um, and has become a millionaire from his blog where he teaches other people how to beat the airlines, how to win at this game. But of course, winning implies that you understand what the game is, right? How do you win at, at life? How do you win at you know, something that's important? And he's decided that this is the most important thing to him. But you have to ask the question, of course, does this game that he's winning at have any sense of reality to it? It will not surprise you to hear that Ben is lonely. As he describes in the article, he sees families at the airport with balloons that are welcoming people back home. And he realizes that he doesn't have that. The writer of the article says this, his trip reports, that's where he writes on his blog, betray a theme. In photo after photo, entirely devoid of human companionship, empty lounges, first-class menus, embroidered satin pillows, inanimate totems of a five-star existence. Ben himself says about seeing those families in the airport, he says, the world is so big, I can keep on running. At the same time, it makes you realize the world is small. After a long pause, he continues, I want what I can't have. There's nothing gratifying about that. I'd still like to think I'm a reasonably happy, reasonably happy person, despite all that. I mean, here's someone who literally never arrives. He never reaches the sense of accomplishment. It's always the next place so that he can have more of what he's made up as this new currency. His life is, the name of the article, is up in the air. I mean, he's just his whole life is up in the air. That's all it is, literally. Chasing more points, trying to win at the game, not really fully understanding what the game is. And we meet a similar person here in Mark chapter 10, this rich young man who comes to Jesus, who is winning at the game, so to speak, but is he really? He's the rich young ruler. That's what we've come to call him in church. Rich young ruler. Actually, Mark, he's just called a rich man here. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, he also tells the story. And he's called young there. And in Luke's gospel, we're told that he's a ruler. That he is a ruler in the synagogue. And so he has become just this combination of those three gospels, the rich young ruler. And you've got to stop and think for a second. Why is this man approaching Jesus? I mean, just think about the title, Rich Young Ruler. That, that checks off most people's boxes for a good life, doesn't it? Rich, wealth, young, youth, ruler, power. Aren't these the things that we try to hold on to? Aren't they the things that most people are desperate not to lose, to not lose their wealth, to not lose their youth, to not lose their sense of power and control in the world. And yet, despite having that, he seems to be 
this humble guy. I mean, he comes and he lays himself before Jesus. And I don't think that if you've been around church for a while, you kind of have this idea about the rich young ruler that he's this kind of whiny brat kid. But I don't think actually the passage portrays him that way. I think it's, he's an earnest young man that wants to do the right thing. And he comes to Jesus and he actually lays himself out despite his wealth and his position. He lays himself before Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Look, I have the money, I have the youth, I have the power. I want the Holy Grail. I want what everybody wants to live forever. How do I have that? And Jesus, he, much to the chagrin of his disciples, makes it difficult for this young man to follow him. He makes it hard for him. I mean, here is a seeker. Here's someone who's asking the question that if you're an evangelist, you want everybody to ask, right? If you're trying to share the gospel and somebody says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then you're going to have your, your answers ready. Why doesn't Jesus give him a good answer right away? Why doesn't he give him a tract? Why doesn't he tell him to pray a prayer? He takes him instead on this journey. And he tells him where arrival really is. The sense that your life is up in the air despite what you have. And our lives are up in the air despite what we have. But there is a sense of arrival. Christianity is a faith that teaches there is an arrival. There is something better. There is a family waiting at the airport. There is a sense of meaning to your life. There is eternal life, the Holy Grail itself, that awaits those who trust in Jesus. But it's not something, importantly, that he says here, it's not something that you can tack on to an already successful life. Instead, it's a journey with Jesus. So I want to talk about this journey and to frame how we discussed this this morning in three questions for the journey with Jesus, where he leads him into this place of following him or gives him the chance to follow him. So the first question is this. And the first question on the, on the journey is, who is good? Who is good? And this journey is a journey to the cross. That's what it says in verse 17. It actually doesn't say the cross, but this is what we know. And as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus is setting out on his journey. What does that mean? Mark is telling us he's going somewhere. Where is he going? He's going to Jerusalem. The first half of Mark is Galilee. He's hanging out. He's teaching. He's casting out demons. He's healing. The second part is journey towards the cross. Jesus is moving to the cross, and he wants us to follow with him. And so the first question on this journey is this, who is good? Setting out on his journey, a man ran up, verse 17, and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, immediately you have to answer a question that this, this um, passage raises, which is like, does Jesus just, did he just admit that he's not God, or did he just say that he's not good? Like, why do you call me good? Nobody's good except God alone. Is he implying there that he's not good and that he's not God? Uh, no, you're just, you're just misreading the, the emphasis here. That's a very natural thing to do when you read it. 
but that's not actually what he's saying. What he's saying is this. The emphasis is not on me. That's how we tend to read it. Why do you call me good? The emphasis is on you. Why do you call me good? What is it that makes you do that? He's asking for self-reflection from this man. He's not saying I'm not good. He's saying, what is it that makes you say that? Why do you say that I'm good? Because you know that's an attribute of God. And are you saying that I'm God? And if so, that will mean different things for your life. Nobody's good but God alone. Why do you say that? And then he has more questions for the man. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. What is Jesus doing? He's, he's reciting some of the Ten Commandments to this man who would believe that following the law is the way to inherit eternal life. And yet he still has these questions. And it's interesting that all of the, the ones that Jesus asks about are in what we would call the second table of the law. So if you think about the Ten Commandments, these Ten Commandments that, that Moses gave to the people from God's hand, the first four we call the, the first table of the law. They all have to do with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath. They have to do with God. But the second table of the law, commandments 5 through 10, have to do with how we treat others. Honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. And so he asks about those commands first. And what he seems to be implying here, since several of these have this kind of money uh, aspect to them, is he's asking him, have you done anything unjust to get your wealth? Have you, did you kill someone to get your wealth? Have you committed adultery on your way to the top of this world? Did you steal? Did you lie? Did you cheat somebody out of this? Did you weasel money out of your parents? You know, we might say. So he's asking him, basically, how did you get to where you are? And the response from the young man is this. Teacher, he doesn't say good teacher anymore. See, see, he learned from his mistake. He said good teacher the first time. Jesus said, why do you call me good? He's like, okay, okay, all right. Teacher, um, you know, he's probably beating himself up. This is an earnest kid. Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus doesn't correct him. Now, it's not true that he's kept these things perfectly from his youth, but in general, I think we're supposed to believe that this is a decent person who has not gotten his wealth in unjust ways, has tried to follow the law. On a relative scale, this is a good person. Jesus loves him. He looks at him, and he loves him. It's gentle. It's the only gospel that records that little detail, that Jesus looked at him with love. He doesn't scoff. He doesn't say, you are a liar. He loves him. But the point remains, as good as you are, there is no one good but God alone. And the first point in this journey with Jesus is answering this question, who is good? And the answer is, no one except God alone. And you have to get to that point if you're going to follow Jesus. You can't approach Him with your record of good works, even if on a relative scale they are pretty good. 
compared to the people around you, if you've done a pretty good job of keeping your life together, you cannot come to Jesus with this, that I, in a sense, am good. You can't approach Jesus with your good track record because you don't have one. And this is something that's not popular to say, and I keep hearing it in Christian circles even, that we can't say it. I even just heard a podcast a few weeks ago where this guy who's coming from a Christian perspective, he said, look, um, as church leaders, as pastors, we can't keep telling people that they aren't good. It's damaging. It's psychologically damaging to tell people that they aren't good. It's not that they're not good. It's that they believe the different narrative. It's that they're not differentiated. It's that they have a shadow self. It's, it's all these other terms that we use. And there's nothing wrong with those terms necessarily used in the right context, but there is something wrong when we can't say straightforwardly what Jesus says about us. No one is good but God alone. No one is good except for God. Romans 3. There are none who are righteous, none who seek after God, none who does good. We can't approach Him. Good has no meaning to us when the scale, the relative scale, is God. Do you understand what I mean? When God's goodness is on display, what we believe about God, then we do not measure up, even if in a relative sense, we do pretty well. This is not how we approach it. We can't approach Him this way. Who is good? Answer, no one. Second question, who is rich? Who is rich? Verse 21 Jesus tells the man what he must do. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What is Jesus doing here? Is he making this man's wealth a condition of salvation? What is he doing? He is simply switching from the second table of the law to the first. The first, he says, did you defraud anyone? Have you honored your father and mother? And what he says here is this, okay, let's go back to the first table of the law, shall we? The first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you believe that one? Let's test it. Will you sell everything just because I said so? And the man's face falls. He's disheartened, literally grieved. The same word that's used about a storm coming. The clouds gathering for a storm. So a cloud passes over his face, we might say in English, by this saying. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And this is the first time in the Gospels that someone refuses an invitation from Jesus to follow him. And it's by someone who, quote unquote, should be in. Jesus explains how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. 
Jesus slams the wealthy. And the crowds go wild, right? It's a Bernie Sanders rally. I just had to put that in there. <laughs> not, not a political statement. You know, the wealthy, down with the wealthy. And the, the crowds go wild, right? No. They are confused. says it twice. They don't get it. They're exceedingly astonished. Why? For a couple of reasons. What Jesus just said challenges their view of morality. Because they, like many of us, believe that wealth and morality are tied together in some ways. We often, well, we have competing views, right, in in American culture. Many people think that simply having wealth, the fact that wealth exists, is an injustice. So to have wealth is to be unjust in some kind of way. Or the fact that a certain percentage at the top has the most wealth is an injustice by, by definition. Um, so we have that, that current going on. And, but that doesn't stop most of us, even if we believe that, from, uh, from telling our children to do a good job and to work hard and try to get the best job possible and try to have an edge over other people. We also believe that generally hard work, being a decent person, gets you in a place where you can succeed financially and otherwise. We believe this. And Jesus challenges this. This person who's very well off in every sense, including a spiritual moral sense, including a, I know, like, I, I, have, I lack something. With all that I have, he comes before him and says, I lack something. But, but still, with all that he has, he doesn't have it. It challenges their view of morality. It also challenges their view of themselves because they can sense already that this is a relative thing. Because this man has great possessions and he's, this is blinding him. But the disciples are thinking to themselves, okay, well, maybe I don't have great possessions, but I have a fair number of possessions. And maybe it doesn't just apply to, um, to money. Maybe it applies to other things, as it clearly does, because Jesus later talks about our living situations, our houses, our family situations, how good of a family we have, the country that we're in, these kinds of things that we have. And the disciples know, they sense, they're astonished because they know that in some sense this is aimed even at them. If there's, if there's a camel and a needle analogy, like that's the extreme wealthy person, but I'm a relatively wealthy person, right? And so maybe it's not that extreme, but this certainly applies to me. And it certainly applies to us because almost everyone in this room is wealthy in multiple senses. This is just true. It's true in the financial sense. If you look at the view of the whole world, if you make $32,400 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world. I know not everybody in this room makes $32,000 a year, but if you make half of that, then you're still like in the top 70% of the world. Top 1%. Well, you say, well, it's, it's, it's relative, right? I don't make nearly as much people as in my neighborhood or the people that I go to gym with or the people at my company. Well, you can tell that to the other 99%, right? That, that'll sound really good. I'm not, I'm not shaming anyone for having money. I'm saying this is true. This applies to us automatically. It applied to the disciples automatically. They felt it. That's why they're saying, who can be saved? We are rich. That's strike two. Who is good? No one. Who is rich? All of us. And in both cases, 
That is a denial of eternal life. Both get in the way of arriving. The, the passage doesn't teach that it's difficult for a rich person to be saved. It teaches that it's impossible. And Jesus uses this analogy of the camel going through the eye of a needle. If you've been around church for a little while, you might have heard some really funny explanations for that passage. Um, some people say, well, the eye of the needle wasn't actually a, a needle like we would think about. It's, it's like a gate in Jerusalem, and the camel would go through the gate. And so it's difficult for the camel to get through the gate, but if you maneuver it the right way, the camel can get in. Uh, and some people say, well, no, it's, it's actually a different than that. It's the, the word for camel is tied to, uh, or very similar to, the word for twine. And so Jesus is, is talking about, uh, in Aramaic, these are similar words, maybe he just mixed it up, or maybe he got confused, and the, it's twine going through an eye of a needle. It's difficult to get twine to go through an eye of a needle, but it's not impossible. But I don't know why people use those explanations to make it difficult for rich people <laughs> to get into heaven, when Jesus clearly is using, because he says it later, a metaphor for impossibility, not difficulty. It's impossible. He's saying, when pigs fly, he takes the largest animal that he can think of in his culture and the smallest aperture he can think of, and he says, try to fit the two. It's impossible. It's a simple metaphor for impossibility, and it's true that what he tells us about here is related to money. We could fill in the blank with many other things that we love, whatever our hearts grip onto. But it is significant that he uses this idea of money because that's the thing that most of us are easily gripped by and easily try to hold on to. And so the question that a lot of people have and that you perhaps have this morning is, does this story require Christians to be in poverty? Is that what it means for everyone to follow Jesus, to take a vow of poverty? And we take the pressure off and then put it back on. So first, not necessarily. Um, this is clearly the case in Scripture that it is not necessarily the case that everyone should be in poverty. The evidence for this, we could go on with lots of different things. But first of all, it's obvious he doesn't require this of all of his disciples so far. This is the first instance we have and the only instance where he requires someone to give up their wealth. Also, if you think about the righteous men and women in Scripture who were wealthy, the list goes on and on. God blessed people with their wealth. The patriarchs, Job, and uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all wealthy men. Um, in the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea, who buried Christ, very wealthy, known as wealthy. Lydia, seller of purple dyes, was wealthy. In Jesus' parables, a surprising number of them have to do with money. And the winners, the, the victors in those parables, are often people who invest well, save well, and take care of their businesses and investing. Also, Scripture assumes that wealthy people will be in churches. If you read Paul's letters especially, you see that he has instructions to those who are wealthy. They should act this way. And so he assumes that there are some, there's a different level of incomes within the church. So the Bible does not require that every Christian take a, a vow of poverty. It's not saying that. But it's not not saying that either. 
And perhaps we've lost something in the evangelical world where virtually no one takes a vow of poverty. And wouldn't it be a gain to the body of Christ if someone were to say, I look around and I love Christ and I have no need of this, any of this, just to serve him. I think that would be a gain to the body of Christ, though not required. Who is good? No one. Who is rich? All of us. So then the obvious last question is, with those two strikes against us, the disciples ask this question, then who can be saved? They were exceedingly astonished, verse 26, and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Who can be saved? Who can arrive? Who can actually know that they've, they've landed the plane and they've been welcomed into the family? Are all of us doomed to be like this man? Because most of us are not even as good as him in a relative sense. And the disciples truly were not either. That's why they're wondering. That's why they're, they feel embarrassed. They're like, this guy's not in. Look, what gives? We're not even that good as him. Will there ever be a sense that I'm secure and that I have what I need? Who can be saved? Jesus says, no one by themselves. It is impossible. It is impossible. It is only with God that it is possible. And we see what that structure looks like by what Peter says next and Jesus' answer to him because Peter said to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. We have left everything and followed you. Who can arrive? It's people who do this first. Those who let go. This is what Peter says. We have let go. We have, that's literally what he says, we've left everything. It literally means we've, we've lost our grip. We've let go of everything. We've done, Peter says, what the rich young ruler could not. We, we actually did leave and followed you. And there is a sense in which you must leave everything in order to follow Jesus. Going back to Mr. Schlappig, the millionaire uh, airpoint, <laughs> air mile man. He's wrestled millions of miles away from the airlines and it's easy to scoff at him because, you know, what, what's the point to open up a computer screen and to see all of these millions of miles that you have at an airline? The points are temporary. They can only be used for a couple of things. They can be taken away at any moment. Now, trade airline points for dollar bills. And the same things apply. Aren't they just numbers on a screen now too for us? Can't they be taken away? Can't our economy crash? Just in a human sense, it certainly can. It will at some point. We are a nation, just like Rome. We don't still use Rome's currencies, do we? There will be a time when the dollar bill doesn't exist anymore. It can be taken away. 
It can only be used for a limited number of things that actually make us feel like we arrive. And yet, we cling to them. Now put in whatever is precious to you. Put in a relationship. That's also temporary. Put in a family. As good as that is, it's also temporary. Put in anything else that can become precious to you. Whatever you have a tendency to cling to. And there is a sense in which we have to let go of everything to follow Jesus. C.S. Lewis discusses this. And he says, when we leave everything to follow Jesus, it's very difficult. But it's not nearly as difficult as the alternative, he says. Because the alternative is is that we keep believing that sex is the most important thing or that money is the most important thing or whatever, this relationship that I have that's temporary is the most important thing. And then we try to add Jesus into that. And there's these competing things. And it just doesn't work. It's very difficult to get any sense of arrival when you start with that point. But he says start rather with a different point that he can take anything and has the right to take it all. And then let him add those things back in. Seek you first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Let him say first what is good and then you see if it fits your life. First you leave everything and then he tells you what is good. He adds it back. And that may mean that to follow Jesus for the first time, some of us may need to leave something. Leave behind a relationship. Leave behind a sexual partnership. Leave behind a job that's not honoring to Christ or where you can't honor Christ in it. Leave behind a family member. Leave behind a fortune, perhaps. And then from that starting point, see what is good and let him add back in. There is a sense in which you have to let go to follow Jesus. And then you follow him. That's the second step. We have left everything, he said, and followed you. And that was his invitation to the rich young ruler as well. Go sell everything and follow me. And so it's not just that you get rid of everything. It's that you come and you build a life where Jesus says life is good. And then when you do those things, the third step is you arrive. And it's a real arrival. Verse 29, he tells us, What is promised to us? Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You need to know that you're not leaving everything to gain nothing. In fact, in an eternal sense, you're leaving practically nothing to gain everything. And it's not just one day. It's not just what the critics of Christianity say, which is just, this is like the tether on the end of a stick. It's like it's a future hope, an opiate for the masses. You can have to control people in obedience so that one day you have eternal life. No, he says, now in this time, it's possible for you to achieve the richness of God now, to have the church as your family, to have brothers and sisters and houses and all the good things that God gives us. It's possible to have those now and in the age to come. Yes, even the holy grail eternal life. The thing that all of us, whether we're conscious of it or not, seek after more than everything because it gives sense, it gives meaning to the things that we have now. There is no sense of meaning if there is no eternal life. 
And you have all these things not because you're good and despite the fact that you're rich, but because He is good and because He has done what is not possible for you to do. Because He went to the cross for us and made it possible, made a way. And so there may be a sense in which you need to leave everything. You can talk to us about what that might mean. But you may need to leave some things to follow Jesus. And I know that there's many who claim the name of Christ here this morning who think, after hearing all this, (laughs) what I'm wondering is, have I left enough? Have I left enough? And it's good that you wrestle with that. I wrestled with that this week. If you don't wrestle with that after hearing this, then I wonder if you're following Jesus, right? Because he is so intense here. But here's what gives me comfort. When, in verse 28, when, the, when Peter says, See, we have left everything to follow you. And I think that's true in a sense, but I also think, have they? <laughs> have the disciples actually left everything? This group of men who are constantly fighting over power and position, who are trying to avoid suffering, And it's extremely comforting to see that Jesus looks at them as well. He looks at the rich young ruler and loves him, but it says also that he looked at them also with this love, this divine gaze. He sees them in their striving. He sees them in their imperfection. He sees them with their clinging to their current desires for power and money. And he says, yes, I know that you've left everything to follow me. And so letting go is not just an entrance into faith. Some of you need to let go to become a Christian. And for those of us who claim the name of Christ, letting go is a process. And we're all moving towards this goal. The goal is this, letting go of every other assurance other than this, the riches and the goodness of God. To get to the place, this is the goal, where we don't have assurance in anything, any amount of money, any amount of relationship, any amount of life situation, except for this, the riches and the goodness of God, the very thing that give us a place with him in the first place. Letting go of everything else, except for God, his presence, his love, his grace, his people, his church, That everything becomes kind of a side issue. Something that we look at to the side and we think, oh, that's nice. He just gave me that raise. Oh, it's nice. This this is so beautiful to have this spouse. It's so beautiful to have this family in this situation. And we we notice it and it's beautiful. And it's not wrong. But it's good and it's to the side. But those things, this is the goal I'm saying, those things never grip us. That they can literally all go. And we still have faith and we still have the hope of eternal life. It's not built into those other things. It's become part of something else, part of our relationship with God. And so when and if he does remove those things, as he did to Job, and Job's wife's advice was to curse God and die because he's taken away everything. We don't do that. When he takes away whatever is precious to us, it doesn't affect us that way. 
because we can't, we can't conceive of something more precious than him. And we know that that, at least, is secure because that is our assurance. It's in him, not in these other things. None of us are there. The disciples are not there. But that is the goal that is put before us as followers of Jesus Christ, to let go of every other assurance than this, that we have this thing that cannot be taken away. It's called the riches of God that, are in, that we have inherited by what Jesus has done. It's the goodness of God that we have been given by being united to him, not on our own. Let's pray.